Greetings, and welcome to Blue Stocking, the podcast for people who love to learn, but don't always have time to study. I'm your host, Rory Roberts, and today we're going to be talking about cirrhosis and Dickens, and no, it's not the cirrhosis you think. I want to start out with an article from the atlasobscura.com website written by Anne Eubank. The Feminist Lunch That Broke Boundaries 150 Years Ago On April 20th, 1868, a dozen women filed into Delmonico's. The New York restaurant was the most famous in America and the women were all middle and upper class. But many of the women worked, which was an anomaly in the mid-19th century, and their lunch was even more of an anomaly. It was the first time American women deliberately dined in the public eye without the accompaniment of men. At the time, American society was strictly segregated by sex and the streets were a male sphere. A middle or upper class woman alone in public attracted intense attention and working women were often invisible. For all women, a male companion was a necessary ticket into a restaurant private dining rooms where solitary women could eat out of sight or the norm and only for the most elite women. According to food historian Paul Friedman, very few establishments accommodated women shoppers and travelers. In 1850s New York, for example, only a handful of ice cream saloons allowed women to eat by themselves. But in 1868, reporter Jane Cunningham Crowley was fed up. Charles Dickens was touring the United States and the New York Press Club through a dinner in his honor at Delmonico's. Crowley wanted to attend the Dickens dinner, scheduled for April 18th, but the Press Club refused, even though she was a member. After she protested, the club leadership relented, but they insisted that she and other female members stay behind a curtain where they could be neither seen nor heard. Infuriated, Crowley didn't attend, but she was intent on doing something about her treatment and she was well-placed to do it. Crowley was a well-known reporter who, under the pen name Jenny June, was one of the first American women to write a syndicated column. Later, she became one of the first female journalism professors. In response to her treatment, Crowley founded the first American women's club, which she named Sorosis. Uh, side note, that's S-O-R-O-S-I-S. A scientific term for the group of budding flowers that form a fruit. She recruited fellow upper-class professional women, such as the journalist Kate Field and the minister Ella Dietz Clymer. For the first meeting, Crowley approached the restaurant proprietor, Lorenzo Delmonico. She asked him to host her risky and outré group of unaccompanied women for a lunch just two days after the Dickens dinner. Gracious as well as progressive, Delmonico agreed, providing a dining room for the first meeting. The choice of Delmonico's was a statement. Not only had Charles Dickens been hosted there, he declined Crowley's invitation to attend the first cirrhosis meeting, but Delmonico's was the culinary center of America. 
Founded in 1827 as a pastry shop, Delmonico's became America's first true restaurant, an island of good taste and good food in a country previously indifferent to fine cuisine. During its mid-century glory years, the kitchen was ruled by French chef Charles Ranhofer, who created dishes such as lobster Newburgh for the politicians, luminaries, and upper crust who frequented Delmonico's. Crowley made the restaurant Cirrhosis's headquarters. As the first club entirely run and administered by American women, Cirrhosis immediately attracted attention and censure. The club's goal was to bring together women of thought, taste, intelligence, culture, and humanity, and to encourage women to work. Guest speakers attended regular women's lunches at Delmonico's, lecturing on the topics of the day. In January 1869, an editorial in the New York Times poked fun at the development of a charitable coalition between Cirrhosis and Susan B. Anthony's revolutionists, which aimed to help the working women of New York. But the dear creatures are as impractical as ever. The anomalous, uh, the anonymous journalist wrote about the discussion. Magazines portrayed club members in cartoons as combative shrews. One unflattering 1869 illustration derided both African American and women's suffrage, with the caricature of the suffragette holding a knobby club labeled cirrhosis. Even under duress, Crowley defended cirrhosis. The traditional home life is insufficient for our needs, mental and physical, she said in 1869. Crowley understood this well since the illness and death of her husband made her the family breadwinner. Crowley was a product of her time. She also advised women to be good homemakers and mothers. But she simultaneously worked for 40 years as an author and journalist and helped found the New York Women's Press Club and the General Federation of Women's Clubs. The club flourished, and by the end of its first year, 83 female historians, writers, artists, and physicians attended its precedent-setting lunches. Before Cirrhosis' founding, wrote Lady Lately Thomas in his book Delmonico's A Century of Splendor, there had been no garden clubs, no bridge clubs, no associations for professional women, not even church or missionary societies carried on solely by women. Cirrhosis sparked a slew of women's clubs across America, and many Cirrhosis branches are still active today. The lunch at Delmonico's in 1868 kickstarted the emergence of women into the public sphere. Yet, change was slow to come. Certain restaurants and clubs remained off-limits to women well into the 20th century. Two women travelers in 1906 described how a waiter hedged and questioned them until he found out that no man was joining, at which point he refused to let them eat at his establishment. As the 20th century progressed, more and more women worked outside the home and needed places to eat. Yet as late as the 1960s, many restaurants refused to admit women. While the concept of barring women from restaurants now seems dated, 
there is once more a national movement of women fighting for the right to pursue careers without harassment. In light of that, as well as the 150-year anniversary of the first meeting of cirrhosis, the modern Delmonico's will offer an updated 19th century menu for a week, starting at a debut lunch on April 20th. Under chef and author Gabrielle Hamilton, beef bouillon with madeira, jellied consomme, soft-shell crab, and brulee rice pudding will be served. It may very well be what Crowley and her recruits ate 150 years ago. Though the early cirrhosis meetings didn't involve alcohol, the members didn't want to raise even more eyebrows, Delmonico's special events director Karen Serafian thinks the original cirrhosis members would want to celebrate the gains that women have made in the last 150 years. I think they'll be here in spirit, toasting this remarkable day, she says. So, side note, I wish I lived in New York so I could attend Delmonico's next week. Um, That just sounds fascinating and wonderful. Uh, So, if you are in the city and nearby and get a chance to go to one of those lunches, I think you should. And let me know how it goes. Uh, So, the previous article mentioned Charles Dickens. And I think it's no wonder that he declined the invitation to uh, that first cirrhosis meeting because he has a pretty bad reputation when it comes to women. And I was thinking about, uh, I had always thought that the origin of the phrase hurt like the Dickens came from Charles Dickens because he had treated his wife and many of its children so poorly. Um, Turns out I was wrong. Uh, Dickens was a euphemism for the devil or hell um, because at certain times in history that those were considered words too risque for people to utter. Um, So you hear a lot of uh, about the Dickens in Shakespeare and I think he's the first recorded use of it but it was a very prevalent uh, phrase in Victorian times. So I I came across this article and take this with a grain of salt. This was in The Guardian a couple of years ago and it's written by Lucinda Dickens Hoxley. You heard that name correctly. She's a descendant. Uh, And this is uh, called Charles Dickens and the Women Who Who Made Him. To a modern reader, many of Dickens's heroines can seem weak, foolish figures of fun. Dickens's novels date from the 1830s to 1870 when women were legally the property of their husbands, fathers, or whichever male relative called themselves head of the family. His heroines, including Flora Finching, Dora Spinlow, and Rosa Budd, described in the mystery of Edwin Drood as wonderfully pretty, wonderfully childish, are often infuriating to read now. At the time of their creation, however, Dickens was emulating a popular impression of what a well-brought-up young lady should be like. Many Victorian girls and even adult women were forbidden by their families to read novels if the heroines were considered too controversial, including Anne Bronte's The Tenant of Wildfell Hall and Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. 
Instead, they were recommended to read improving books, often written by religious writers, about how girls and women should behave. Think Jessica's First Prayer by Hesba Stretton and Coventry Patmore's narrative poem, The Angel in the House. Queen Victoria famously sacked her daughter's governess after discovering one of the princesses reading a novel. The real women in Dickens' life were very different from his domesticated and compliant creations, including three remarkable women in his family. Charles's paternal grandmother, Elizabeth Dickens, was a servant in the household of Lord Crewe. She began as a housemaid and, after being widowed and left a single mother, worked her way up to the role of housekeeper. Her grandson retained vivid memories of her warm personality and storytelling. Dickens's mother, Elizabeth, taught her children mathematics, literacy, and Latin. She and her husband, John Dickens, were also unusually progressive in believing it was their eldest child, a daughter, Fanny, whose education was more important than their son's. Fanny was two years older than Charles and a talented musician, winning a scholarship to the Royal Academy of Music. As well as his family, the women Dickens chose to surround himself with show an appreciation of a sharp female presence. There were so many fascinating women in Dickens's life. The novelist Anne Thackeray Ritchie, who shocked society with her engagement at 39, to a fiancé who was 17 years her junior and her godson. The anti-slavery campaigner and educationalist Elizabeth Jesser Reed, and the author Elizabeth Gaskell, who Dickens tracked down in 1848 despite her writing anonymously. Dickens encouraged Gaskell to continue writing about subjects deemed unsuitable for a female novelist, such as illegitimacy and prostitution. One of the most influential of Dickens's female friends was the banking heiress Angela Burdick Coutts. They met in the early 1830s. A few years later, she was asked to be godmother to Charles and Catherine Dickens's first child, Charlie. In 47, Dickens and Burdett Coutts set up their most famous joint venture. Urania Cottage in London's Shepherd's Bush, intended as a rehabilitation home for so-called fallen women, a category which covered all manner of social ills, where they could learn basic literacy and numeracy as well as cooking, sewing, and cleaning. Dickens worked with prison governors to help women who were about to be released. He was passionate about rehabilitation, convinced that most female convicts were not inherently criminal but simply desperate, failed by a harsh society. Both Urania Cottage and its founder's friendship eventually fell victim to the breakdown of the Dickens's marriage, when Burdett Coutts found it difficult to forgive her friend for his treatment of his wife. Even Dickens's much-maligned wife Catherine, who is often criticized as having been too compliant and too similar to his fictional heroines, was actually a sparky, intelligent woman who was simply laid low by a combination of constant childbearing and postnatal depression. In their early marriage, Catherine enjoyed a happy, adventurous life accompanying her husband to America and Canada. She acted in a series of theatricals at home and abroad, and she wrote a book, What Shall We Have for Dinner?, intended as a guide for young housewives, preceding the more celebrated Mrs. Beaton by a whole decade. 
Sadly, Catherine Dickens is usually remembered today as the saddened and wronged wife, eclipsed by her younger rival for Dickens's affections, the actor Ellen Ternan, rather than as the bright woman Dickens married. So why do Dickens's female characters lack so much? Many criticize his heroines for being far too thinly sketched. They can be beautiful and good, but seldom deep-thinking or intelligent. The ones with spirit and sharpness tend not to be considered sexually alluring, and often by reason of being thwarted financially or socially, they tend not to be written about in terms of becoming wives. Think of Rosa Dartle or Miss Wade. Those who do manage to overcome the barrier of being too quick or witty or clever tend to lose this spark as soon as they fall in love, such as Bella Wilfer in Our Mutual Friend, as though it wasn't really their true personality but merely one they were toying with. There is a sense that once Bella has been tamed by marriage, all that independent nonsense will leave her. Perhaps, in his heroines, Dickens was portraying an idealized woman, one whom, when he encountered her in, a, in reality, proved less than ideal, or perhaps he was creating the kind of women he thought his audience wanted to read about. Considering how many independent and intriguing women Dickens knew, I think it is remarkable that he is derided for making his literary hero heroines too docile or one-dimensional as such descriptions could not have been applied to the real women in his life. Dickens scholars can argue for years about whether he was creating women he idealized or whether he was creating characters symbolic of the Victorian stereotype of women. Dickens was a superb publicist, always aware of what sold, but he also refused to pander to public opinion. This isn't just seen in his hard-hitting journalism, but also in his tenderness towards characters such as Nancy in Oliver Twist, whom Dickens never refers to as a prostitute and whose death caused him physical anguish, and little Emily in David Copperfield. He saw both these women's, women as victims of a cruel society which allowed men to behave in one way and expected women to behave in another. It is worth remembering that Victorians lived in an intensely patriarchal society despite the British Empire working under the reign of the most powerful woman of the century. Queen Victoria was utterly against the idea of any other women having power. In a furious letter to her friend Theodore Martin, she wrote that women were a poor, feeble sex and that the suffragist Lady Amberley should be whipped. Dickens's women were a product of the age he lived in and of a legal system that still referred to women as the chattel of their husbands and fathers, keeping them in that position both in life and literature. Again, I would take that article with a grain of salt uh, because, like I said, Dickens was not known for treating his women well. In fact, the sparkling wife that is described here uh, was also compared by her husband to a donkey. Thank you, Charles Dickens. Uh, I think I'll stand with my previous judgment. So if you enjoyed the podcast today, please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. That will help us get the word out. And thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.